This is Packer and Durham on ACCN and Sirius XM Channel 371. Hour two, Friday's Packer and Durham. Uh, the very affable Drew Carter is here today. Fresh off a social media beatdown yesterday. <laughs> I mean, you got, got taken to the woodshed, didn't you? I mean, this PL thing comes out. Congratulations, you and Jay Alter and uh, Cotter and Anish and uh, your buddy uh, from Barstool, Jake Marsh. Is that his name? That's my guy, Jake Marsh. We all call him Darsh, thanks to that South Park episode and Aspen. If any of the folks at home have seen that one. Not a South Park it's, guy. Uh, was. I, I've seen maybe one. Um, okay. So here's my question. Is Jake a Syracuse grad or did he go to some other uh, erstwhile school of broadcasting and communications? Not the hallowed one up on the hill that everybody else takes a knee to. <laughs> Yes, he is a Syracuse grad. Uh, you can look at a play-by-play yeah. roster, and uh, <laughs> pretty much the odds of anyone being a Syracuse grad are about minus 300. And yes, he yeah, is Syracuse right. class of 18, so one year older than I am. But he's not a former Elon Phoenix broadcaster, but he does his best. I'm not either. I'm not either. I'm not an Elon Phoenix broadcaster. Because when I was in school, we were the fighting Christians. Wow. All right. A little trivia. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 We were also a college, not a university. So I want to thank the people that attend the university now, though, and go to school there because my degree becomes more valuable every day as a result of the good people that go there now. It is a terrific place, but I was there. I was there when they literally let they let me come to school there i didn't I, I, it was the place they let me come to school as i like to tell people um so all right you you've recovered you've recovered from the social media beatdown today because we've already had some in-depth lacrosse discussion in college basketball are you doing the question i got during the break from somebody here was are you doing pll this weekend are you involved in the pll coverage here in week 1 or is it on into the season a little bit no. okay yeah, I'm, I'll All be right. in Baltimore and Minneapolis. Got a couple games in Baltimore. Jake Marsh will be there. Then I'm going back to my hometown of Minneapolis first week of July for four games with Mr. Paul Carcatero. So we'll try to find the best pie, best pizza pie in the Twin Cities when Kark is in Minneapolis. But not, not this weekend. This weekend, I think, is all a niche. Because, you know, it's the it debut is. of yeah. PLL on yeah. ESPN. It's, it's got to be Mr. Schroff. He's the lacrosse czar at the Worldwide Leader. All right. And then Cotter and Jake and you and Jay Alter involved. Uh, so that'll be good. All right. Regional start today. Uh, you can get coverage up to date on the app. You can see any of the regionals. We've got full coverage for you across the family of networks. And, of course, we've got Notre Dame, Texas Tech, here at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Let's start in Blacksburg, where the number four national seat is Virginia Tech. Cavaliers play tonight, 7 o'clock here on ACC Network, against Wright State. Columbia and Gonzaga is the other side of the bracket. Now, I was doing some reading yesterday of people that follow college baseball, just looking at some of these projections. Virginia Tech making its first postseason appearance since 13. Um... I, I'm as intrigued about Gonzaga at 36 and 17, having to come three time zones to play baseball, Drew. 
Yeah, that can't be an easy task on West Coast to East Coast. I mean, we talk about that in the NFL a lot with the noon kicks on the Mm -hmm. East Coast. Gonzaga, though, I mean, Wes, on paper, let's be honest, this looks like the best possible draw for any of the 16 seeds, I think. Just looking at the names, Gonzaga, Columbia, and Wright State, no major conference opponents in there for Virginia Tech. But it won't be a cakewalk. I mean, we're not going to sit here and pretend like we've watched every second of Zags baseball for the last decade. But I know you were reading a a piece where a pretty smart guy picked Gonzaga to advance. So, listen, I mean, anyone who's in this field is good. It's not going to be a cakewalk for anyone. Virginia Tech, you would hope, would win that first game with Hackenberg on the mound against Wright State, the fourth seed in this regional. But, listen, it's not going to be a foregone conclusion that Virginia Tech moves on. They're the favorite, but it's not for sure. I'll tell you this, the idea that you've got a uh, a team that swept uh, Oklahoma State early in the year and allowed only five runs in Gonzaga, that catches your eye. Pitching and defense for starters. Uh, offensively, I'm sure they're capable, but the idea that Virginia Tech who was pretty good at home this year too. So we'll keep an eye on that one, uh, but you're right. Uh, Mitchell Light in the Athletic yesterday wrote that he likes Gonzaga in that regional. Uh, let's go to Coral Gables because Miami has Canisius at 10 o'clock this morning. On, oh, it says noon here. It said 10 o'clock on one other sheet. Noon on ESPN+. Plus. Canisius, it is at 10. Okay. It is 10 a.m. this morning. So we'll go off and you can start baseball at 10 a.m. with Miami and, uh, and Canisius. Miami's 48th appearance in the postseason here. And, you know, and here's another one for you, Drew. I like Miami, but I see Arizona and Ole Miss there too. And Ole Miss has probably got a little bit of chip on the shoulder thinking that everybody thinks they don't deserve to be in the thing at all. Yeah, I mean, this is the anti-Blacksburg, right, Wes? Instead of the uh, smaller conference champions, you've got the big boys and some major Mm -hmm. conference names and some, you know, blue bloods of the sport, I think, especially with Ole Miss in the last, you know, 10 or so years. So Miami's got its work cut out for it. By the way, I think it, this game was pushed to 10 because of weather in Miami. I don't know. Right. Definitely for yeah. some I reason know they're gonna it was be originally scheduled at noon. Yeah, which is like yeah. not right. You know, you, you put a regional in Coral Gables partially because you expect 80 degrees and sun every day, right? I mean, isn't that kind of why South Bend <laughs> didn't host a regional this year? Because everyone just thinks yeah. it's cold they're, there year round. That's not fair. There shouldn't be weather in Miami. I like your style. I like your style. Uh, <laughs> Miami, by the way, is 88-17 and 17 in postseason games at home. Uh, Canisius, who they see today at 10 o'clock, uh, has a 400 hitter in Max Grant. He's one of four players in the NCAA tournament hitting at least 400. Uh, he's got 10 home runs, and he's uh, on base percentage is 492, so pretty a tough out for sure. Um I like Arizona is getting a lot of traction here as the two seed in this bracket. A Miami-Arizona game would be interesting, especially in uh, in Coral Gables. Uh, let's move to College Park where Wake Forest sees UConn at 1 o'clock today. That is on the uh, on ESPNU, coverage from, uh, coverage from College Park. And I got to be honest with you, the Deacons here to me – I think have a real chance, but I have also seen uh, there are some folks that like UConn at forty six and thirteen, the champions of the Big East. 
UConn's been the cream of the crop in the Big East. I'm here in Hartford, and I'll tell you what, Wes, the streets are buzzing. Everyone's talking about Huskies baseball. Uh, they, you know, people used to talk about UConn women's basketball. Now it's Huskies baseball that everyone is talking about here in lovely central Connecticut. Uh, but from an ACC perspective, I'm going to do a little uh, creative journalism. This is, this is it. When RPI suits your narrative, you use it. When it doesn't, RPI is the dumbest thing ever. But when RPI makes an ACC team look good, you better believe I'm going to cite it. And Wake Forest is sixth in the RPI. Maryland is ninth. So a worthy one seed, a worthy host in this College Park Regional. Wake Forest at number six in the RPI. Uh, we had Johnny Aiello in, with the Chatham Anglers in 2017, a great former Wake Forest Demon Deacon. Jamie D'Antona yes. was the hitting coach for the team that year, another yes. former Wake Forest baseball sure. player. So I got Wake Forest coming out of the College Park Regional. Apologies to Jake Eisenberg and Justin Galanti and all the Terps I know. <laughs> How about you, Kanye? You want to apologize to your like neighbors and citizens there in the Hartford area for, <laughs> yeah. for dismissing UConn? People are, are banging on my door right now. They're saying, how dare you pick against UConn? Because Hartford is, is a UConn baseball town. I mean, you walk down the street, you see people in – Tim K jerseys, you see UConn baseball stuff all over. The Get the banners in downtown Hartford. It says, Hartford has it. Go UConn baseball. But uh, I got to go with Wake Forest here. Okay. Nice. Uh, Statesboro Regional <laughs> is, uh, is next, and that's where Georgia Southern is hosting. Notre Dame and Texas Tech start our coverage here on ACC Network at 2 o'clock. Um, you know, look, the Irish here, John Michael Bertrand goes today, and I like John Michael Bertrand with a baseball in his hand against just about anybody, Drew. Totally agree. It's like our man Hackenberg in Blacksburg. When you've got your ace on the mound to start a regional, you got to be feeling real good that you're going to punch your ticket to that winner's bracket. Notre Dame, I mean, I don't know if anyone handicaps NCAA baseball regionals, but you have to think Notre Dame's the favorite here, even though they're on the road. Even though they're below the the Nat line in Statesboro, Georgia, Notre Dame is a team that should have been hosting a regional. We talked about that ad nauseum. Uh, the reasons why they're yeah. not may, might have nothing to do with baseball. Might have something to do with weather in South Bend, which again, as we talked about last week or earlier this week, is nice this time of year. But all that to say, Notre Dame probably the best team in this pod. And uh, if you're an Irish fan, you got to feel pretty good. Now, if you make it through to a Super Regional, you're probably going to Knoxville, which you might not be feeling so good about. But as far as the Regional mm. is concerned in Statesboro, it's a pretty nice draw for the Irish, I think. Although Texas Tech, yeah. I mean, that, that's we talk about Blue Bloods. That's a team with some recent history. Uh, and I think Link Jarrett laid it out pretty well in that interview with Roddy yesterday. But I like Notre Dame here. I think the Irish are playing super well, and um, Notre Dame probably gets out of this one. One of the places that I think ACC fans can look to for success is just given the fact that Louisville is hosting a regional at Jim Patterson Stadium uh, starting this afternoon at, uh, at 2 o'clock, and that's when our coverage of Louisville and uh, uh, southeastern Missouri uh, is on ESPN2. Uh, the other thing you look at in that bracket is Oregon and Michigan. This is an incredibly offensive Regional. When you think about Oregon and Louisville, Michigan, and the job they do, and then I don't know much about SEMO at first glance, but I would guess they can hit the ball too, and therefore pitching will be a premium in the regional at Jim Patterson. The ball's going to be flying. 
Uh, someone call up Jack Harlow to write a song about home runs because we might see a lot of those <laughs> in the Louisville Regional. Wes, they're dominant at home at Jim Patterson Stadium. Yep. Ever since 05, the Cardinals have won nearly 78% of their games at home. So this is a team that plays really well in Derby City. But, I mean, you're right. Like, some of the names in this regional, if we were playing football, that'd be one thing with Oregon and Michigan. But their baseball programs are super solid, too. So this one should be fun to watch. And and Louisville, Mm. as a team that typically performs really well at home, has to be the favorite here. But Oregon and Michigan and even SEMO, they're going to put up a good fight. 95 home runs on the year, by the way, for Southeast Missouri State. So, for a fact, they can uh, they can hit the baseball. All right, next stop for us is Knoxville, where Tennessee is the number one seed. The Volunteers host Alabama State. The noon game on ESPN Plus is Georgia Tech and Campbell here, Drew. And it looks like the Jackets have got their work cut out for them from the start. Yeah, Campbell's a really solid team, a conference champ. You see they win 40 games. Uh, Georgia Tech, we talk about hitting the baseball. That's a team that certainly can with Parada, a guy who was neck and neck with Tommy Tanks for the freshman home run belt this year in the ACC. Uh, You know one thing, when Georgia Tech meets Tennessee, there will be some runs on the board. You don't know if it's going to go well for the Yellow Jackets because the Vols are the one seed for good reason, 53-7. and seven. But if right. we see Tech and Tennessee, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, but I do want to ask, Wes, are you okay? Do you need me to like uh, ship you some, some water? Or is everything, I got, choke- is everything no, all I got right? choked up. I got choked up. Choked up talking about Louisville and Southeast Missouri State. It was a, I got emotional <laughs> knowing that Southeast Missouri State hit 95 home runs. I think Georgia Tech has to – and Danny Hall, you'll hear in case you missed it coming up here. Georgia Tech simply has to pitch it well. I think they've overcome some of the defensive inequities they had early in the year. But like last week in Charlotte, they're ahead of Pittsburgh in the first game of the Tuesday session at the championship. And then all of a sudden, Pitts puts eight on the board in the sixth inning. That's the thing Georgia Tech can ill afford to have happen at any stage in this regional, be it today against Campbell, Tennessee, Alabama State, whoever they play, Drew. You just can't afford to have that happen. Yeah, and if, if Pittsburgh is going to put up that many runs in that short of a span, nothing against Pittsburgh, but we're talking about Tennessee now. Tennessee is the best offensive team in the country. I think you said earlier this week they lead the country in, in home runs and ERA, maybe batting average and yep. ERA. They're loaded. They're loaded. Um, yep. And I asked Aaron Fit the question, is it Tennessee and everyone else, or does anyone have a chance to beat Tennessee? And, of course, it's baseball, so anything can happen, mm-hmm. but – I mean, if you don't pitch it well against Tennessee, you're going to be giving up a 15 spot in a hurry. Yep, no question. Uh, Greenville is our next stop. East Carolina is the host there. And, of course, Virginia is the two seed. And there's some that like the Cavaliers to survive uh, Greenville and emerge at 38-17. and 17. Uh, They get Coastal Carolina today, who is two and 2-4 in regional games since winning the national title in 2016. They went one and two in both 18 and 19. Uh, Coppin State, by the way, is in a regional for the first time this year. But uh, I like Virginia. I like their experience. I like the fact that it's a Cavalier team that went to Omaha. Drew, they know how this process works. I think that's a huge advantage right now. 
Totally with you, Wes. They've been in the College World Series five times since 2009, second most of any program. This might be my favorite region on the board, just from a name perspective. ECU has won 18 <laughs> in a row ever since they lost to NC State, who beat them twice this year. Not like that matters at all mm-hmm. to the committee, but East Carolina hasn't lost in the month of May. Virginia won it all a few years ago, and so did Coastal Carolina. Plus, you've got the fact that a 24-28 and 28 Coppin State team is dancing with these big boys. I love it. I think this is the most intriguing regional. Plus the fact that it's in Greenville, North Carolina, where I've never been, but I know you've been, Wes, and that's got to be a pretty fun place mm. for a regional. I think that the uh, fans will, uh, let's see, if the elbow room is still open in Greenville, they'll enjoy an, an evening at the uh, at the elbow room, if that's still accessible this time of year. Uh, two left here. We'll go to Auburn because that's where Florida State is. Noon today on ESPN2, Tom Hart, Kyle Peterson will be there at the Plainsman Park, by the way. Um, when you look at Florida State here, uh, 44 straight tournament appearances. Parker Messick gets the ball, I'm sure, today against UCLA. There's some team, some folks really like UCLA coming cross-country here, and I understand that, but it seems like a long trip to come as the two-seed to play at an SEC venue where Auburn is host in southeastern Louisiana, by the way, a game above 500 is the four seed in that bracket. Long trip, Wes, right to the border of the central and eastern time zone. Auburn, against all odds, is in the central time zone, which makes no sense. The sun sets at like 3.30 in the winter in Auburn. <laughs> uh, but... Florida State, if they can get past UCLA. I mean, UCLA is a real player in this in this regional, obviously, and they've got a lot of history in baseball. But I'd love to see an mm-hmm. FSU-Auburn matchup with a spot in the Super Regionals on the line. We'll bring back beautiful memories of Jameis Winston to Kelvin Benjamin for ACC fans. Oh, yeah. yeah nice, nice. Well done there. By the way, UCLA averaged nearly 14 runs a game at the Pac-12 championship but did not make – the uh, title game. All right, last stop on our little trip here of the regionals is Chapel Hill. That's where North Carolina is hosting Hofstra at 2 o'clock on ESPN+. Plus. The night game is Georgia from the Southeastern Conference against VCU. Um, I, look, I think Carolina has one of the best paths to the Supers of anybody out there, Drew, in all honesty. Hottest team in the country. Georgia has been pretty disappointing this year, I would say. They're still the two seed in this region. But Carolina, 15-2 and two, uh, in the last 17 games, rolled through Charlotte in the toughest conference tournament yep. this year for my money. So, yeah, I- I'm with you, Wes. I think UNC's got a good shot to get to a super. Uh, Georgia lost its final four Southeastern Conference series of the regular season, uh, including one to Missouri and then went one and done in the SEC baseball tournament. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how much punch the Bulldogs have today when they play VCU as the two seed. Uh, So that's a quick spin around the NCAA Baseball Regionals. When we come back, uh, back to the the off-the-field, off-the-floor stuff in college athletics. Uh, The NCAA uh, yesterday filed a brief at the U.S. Court of Appeals on the potential employee-employer relationship in college athletics. We'll do that next. This is the Packer and Durham Podcast.
Drew Carter's on Packer and Durham on this Friday. Uh, coming up, Sam Hartman, the Wake Forest quarterback, will be with us at uh, at nine fifteen. Charlotte North, the winner of the Tawarton Award, at nine thirty from Boston College. Back to back Tawartons for uh, Charlotte North. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and preface this by saying there is a part of this that we're going to try not to confuse you on this. The NCAA. Uh, has filed an opening brief on Tuesday at the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit for Johnson versus the NCAA. The case centers on a group of current and former college athletes at Villanova, Fordham, Cornell, and others who maintain that they are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, The Fair Labor Standards Act and the Fair Trade Act are two different things. Now, don't forget that part because fair trade is what you get when antitrust and fair trade end up in the NIL world that we're talking about, right? And this whole compensation piece. This uh, Fair Labor Standards guarantees minimum wage and overtime pay and players assert their colleges in the NCAA as a joint employer and are responsible to pay them hourly wages. The players have noted the peculiarity of work-study classmates being paid to work at the ticket gate and concession stands for games where the NCAA prohibits athletes from being paid. Essentially, Drew, we have walked ourselves back to a conversation about employee-employer relationship in college athletics. And we all know with the antitrust exemption, this is a dangerous line for college athletes to walk right now. Because some are just figuring out taxes from name, image, and likeness. Some are figuring out financial implications of being compensated. Now, all of a sudden, to walk the employee-employer situation, granted, we need an attorney in residence here at ACC Network on some of this, but I know this much. I'm not sure anybody wants to go down this path right now, at least as fast as we went down NIL in the portal. Wes, let's get litigious. This is my favorite thing to talk about when we come on uh, sports talk shows is interlocutory appeals and the such, which apparently is uh, an aspect of this case. Um, Listen, I did my senior project in high school on whether college athletes should be paid. We had this class called Modern Problems, and we had to take a controversial topic and basically come up with a well-crafted argument either for or against it. And I learned a little bit about this litigation, but the only reason I bring that up is to say I spent a semester in high school trying to understand it, and I really still don't. I know that Ed O'Bannon had some case against the the Mm -hmm. NCAA, which he won, but then there was so much legal red tape, nothing happened for a while. Then NIL happened, and it was the complete opposite. Everything seemed to move like molasses, whether it was college athletes being allowed to profit off their own name, image, and likeness, or college athletes unionizing or earning a salary or being able to take advantage of a federal work-study program. All that stuff moves so slowly, and then NIL happened, and the floodgates were open. And all of a sudden, that molasses right. was a little more viscous, and it was flowing. You know, And it just it's totally different from how things normally operate when it comes to legal procedures. I feel like we're still a long way away from athletes being uh, characterized as employees. But if that does happen, it just begs the question, how will that change the current landscape of NIL? 
Um, I think probably not right. a whole lot because we're talking about minimum wage here or maybe a work-study program where, where the numbers aren't even sniffing the zip code of what some of these guys make with NIL. We just saw Ryan Day from Ohio State today said he would have to have $13 million to fund the NIL deals for the guys on the team. So we're talking about astronomical numbers, not close to minimum wage. So I feel like even though even if student-athletes are characterized as employees, they probably wouldn't make enough money for this really to impact NIL. But that being said, I don't really understand any of this because I don't have a law degree. <laughs> well, and that's the other part. Here's the long game on this, though. All these different circuits – uh, if you get any kind of split in this, it's ultimately going to keep filing itself up. And where does it get to the top? It goes to the same place that Austin and the NCAA went. Johnson and the NCAA will go to the Supreme Court. And given the NCAA's track record at the Supreme Court, last time they appeared, a 9 nothing loss and a, uh, a decision <laughs> written by Justice Kavanaugh that may have changed the landscape of college athletics forever, uh, to me, I'm not sure the NCAA is interested in another trip to the highest court in the land. But know that they have filed here under the Fair Labor, Sta- uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, and that is a concern. That's a concern for a lot of areas because now we're leaning more and more into governmental influence into what the landscape of college athletics is going to be, which also gets tricky. There's the National Labor Relations Act. There's the antitrust. There's all this now starting to billow and percolate, if you will, about where college athletics may go. And it's an unknown. It's an unknown to a lot of people and a known to very few people. And that's a concern, I think, as the way things move forward. But it is of note, they went ahead and filed this. And it is the first step in the employee-employer situation. Man, are we going down some roads. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's of note here for sure today. Uh, also of note, this is one that crosses some lines. If you're familiar with international soccer, in, a, in particular the Champions League, you're going to want to be around for the next segment because the college football playoff and the Champions League may have something in common next. Packer and Durham. Packer and Durham, I have received uh, communication from Mark Packer. Got an update here. This we're halfway through. Off the grid, though, Wes. Packer. He's off the grid. Well, How yeah, is he allegedly. communicating? Now, well, this is text. This is not social media. Now, Drew, I want you to understand that producer emeritus Drew Brooks validates what I'm telling you. When Packer said during a commercial break, like the last hour of the final show he did two weeks ago today before going on vacation. When the plane takes off, I'm off the grid. It's been every day. He probably thought that the American flight was going to actually dump him in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's he would be off the grid, but not by choice. No, no, he... uh, I have received a text confirming a picture I sent him, and I got back three laugh emojis. So there you go. I got I got all that back. So uh, and I said, "See you Monday," and he goes, "Yep." So I got a yep from Monday. And for those of you that think the opening segment on Monday is going to run long, you're exactly right. So there you go. Um, 
I don't know, Wes. The, I, uh, I actually might take the under on the opening segment because I think Pac's going to be so demoralized that he's not in Italy anymore. He'll just have nothing to say. Oh, but see, here's the thing. Drew Brooks and I will have questions. We'll have lots of questions for the show Monday. Like, question number one, I don't know about Brooks, but my question number one on Monday will be, I thought we were going off the grid. Thought we were, you know, thought we were going to put the phone away, well-deserved. I mean, the term well-deserved, my well-deserved vacation was used like four or five times leading up to the vacation. (laughs) So, anyway. We'll see the Pac-Man on Monday. Fun for all starting at 7 a.m. All right. Interesting story in Sports Illustrated. Um, And you, like me, follow European soccer. We follow it with enough, you know, that you you got a favorite club. You got things like that, right? So Richard Johnson uh, last week wrote a story basically aligning the college football playoff expansion to the Champions League. And it's worth your time. If you read if you read if, if you're interested in how these, you know, ideologies develop about how formats should work and things like that, um, it, it's pretty interesting read. The uh, Champions final is the original one champion one birth. So in other words, you would have teams that would win their conference championship if we were equating this to the CFP. If you won your college football conference, you're in the Champions League. And Drew, you follow this stuff. I mean, this is not the worst idea I've heard to make the college football playoff mirror the Champions League. Not at all. I think it's pretty smart stuff from Richard Johnson, who, by the way, filled in on another ESPN show, the Paul Feinbaum show over on SEC Network, the inferior conference program as compared to Packer and Durham. Richard Johnson filled in on that one. But he's a smart guy, and this is a good comparison to make to Champions League. It's not necessarily a novel idea to say, hey, why don't you just take the five Power Five conference champs, maybe a couple wild cards, and you mandate that a group of five team makes it. That, That would get you to eight. But I I like the way that he comps it to Champions League. Now, I don't really follow European soccer that closely, but I thought that the top four teams in the Premier League made the Champions League. And maybe that applies to like La Liga and Bundesliga as well. Um, Okay, so this one would obviously just be the one champ. Or maybe it'd be the top two in every Power Five conference. I mean, maybe that would be a little more akin to Champions League because the number we've heard for the last year or so is 12 for expansion of the college Mm -hmm. football playoff. But what I really liked about what Richard wrote here, Wes, is he said, if we do this, it would make the playoff more of a playoff and less of an invitational, which is what it is now. There's no qualification. There's no way to guarantee yourself a spot in the top four, even if you win a Power Five conference. I mean, if we're looking across the landscape of sports, we don't even have to go across the pond. We can look at the NCAA basketball tournament, where if you win your conference, Power Five or not, you're in. There should be a way for everyone to get in right now there's not it's just an invitational so i like what richard is is putting down i'm picking it up i think the champions league model would be pretty good for the cfp then it would just become the question of who gets the automatic bid how many automatic bids per conference because if we're talking about 12 teams you could theoretically give the top two teams Mm -hmm. in every power five conference a bid to the cfp and if we're talking about conferences with divisions maybe it's the two division champions but then that would sort of dilute a conference championship 
You got a lot of different angles to take here, but I think an AQ would be good for the sport because the CFP is so subjective right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's not totally fair. It's not really a playoff. It's just an invitational. So you mentioned the invitational idea, and the word invitational is interesting here because it is applicable to the way that the current structure exists. If you had qualifiers from the conferences, now one of the other uh, asterisks in this process is it would be incredibly helpful if all the leagues got rid of divisions. If they abolish divisions and go to a scheduling metric that they're comfortable with, then you could have a scenario play itself out where each league could send their champion or their top two or whatever the case may be. That being said, Drew, The other part about this is the college football playoff committee, to Richard's liking, would then fall into a category where they would help the back end of this, quote, college football playoff exist. The first half of it, the first 10 teams would take care of themselves. It would kind of be the back half of it or maybe the last five in or the last four in, things of that nature, that if you went to 12, then maybe, you know, it'd be 9, 10, 11, and 12 maybe one through five and then six, seven, and eight are determined by process of competition on the field, automatics plus three at larges, then you get to the back half. I think the the diminished role of that committee based on the play on the field is what's going to happen. Now, just like in the Champions League, right, the Premier League may advertise itself as, you know, the premier soccer league in the world, Bundesliga, La Liga in Spain, uh, you know, Serie A in Italy – they may all want their own definition of that and their own place at the table. Well, they'll get it in the Champions League, right? That's something in college football where if you get two SEC teams in the top four, well, the committee's putting them there. If you build a bracket like this of one through whatever, you're there by virtue of what your league has done. I I think that's the interesting part for me because you're going to have to play it out anyway. Well, the meritocracy you're talking about, I think, is an ideal everyone loves, right? You get there based on your merit, and it's fair. Everyone gets a chance. I think the best possible way to do this is have a blend of meritocracy and subjectivity. That's what you have in the NCAA men's basketball tournament which and women's basketball tournament, which is fun. It gives us stuff to talk about. Look at the last three shows we've done together this week, Wes. We've probably spent half mm-hmm. the time we've been on the air complaining about NC State not making it and Notre Dame not hosting a regional um, and then retroactively complaining again about Notre Dame and Duke not making the men's lacrosse tournament. Maybe it's just been me doing the complaining, but it's fun to talk Mm -hmm. about. Is it fair to those teams? No, but one of the reasons we love following college sports is because we can debate, and this is great debate fodder. College football playoff, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest half hour to an hour in television is when there's a question about who the top four is going to be. And you queue up ESPN and you see Reese Davis and Kirk Herbstreit and Joey Galloway, and they're about to reveal it. That's fun. And really, every week for the last half of the season when the playoff committee puts out their rankings is a blast. And it gives us a ton of stuff to talk about. If you whittle it down to where it's only based on conference champions make it, I think it's not going to be quite as fun. Uh, It will emphasize conference championships more, and I think that's a good side effect of this model. But I'd like to see a mix of that meritocracy and the subjectivity because it's fair and it's fun. Well, it's mostly fair. You you will get some teams who feel like they're left out uh, unfairly, but that seems to me like the best way to do it. 
there is a, a sidebar to some of this uh, I, I guess I should share, and that is uh, yesterday a story emerged from the Southeastern Conference meetings with Mark Keenum, who is that chairman of the board of directors for the college football playoff. That, of course, is the uh, grouping of university presidents and things of that nature. And Chancellor Keenum uh, went through a pretty direct conversation with media attending the event and destined to say that he's encouraging his colleagues to come back to the table in the fall here, or at some point, I guess, in June or July they may meet. But, but certainly in the fall, when they come back, their job is going to be to deliver a message and a bracket and a timeline to the commissioners. Remember, this is the group that essentially runs the college football playoff. The five commissioners in Jack Swarbrick and Craig Thompson and all these other folks in the room, they're there as kind of the administrators. These guys are the owners and proprietors of this deal because they're the heads of these institutions. But Chancellor Keenum of uh, Mississippi State, who is the chair of that group, has said he would like to see them on a faster timeline to get this resolved about the expansion of the college football playoff. So we'll see where that goes as well in the coming weeks. When we come back, Danny Hall's team takes the field today in Knoxville as part of the NCAA baseball tournament. They'll do so against the Campbell Camels. We will talk to the head coach of the Yellow Jackets in case you missed it from yesterday's show next on Packer and Durham. Here's Mark Packer and Wes Durham. The coach of the Jackets puts Georgia Tech on the field later today in Knoxville against the Big South champion, Campbell Camels. And we talked to D. Hall yesterday as he was preparing for his practice. And we've started where it's been pretty comfortable. His team offensively, what's it been like to watch that this year? It's been fun to watch. You know, these guys have uh, all performed at a at a high, high level. I think six of our nine starters uh, made all conference. Um, you know, Parada is going to be a high draft pick. I certainly think that, you know, Jenkins and Simpson would have a chance to go really high. Tres Gonzalez is just kind of a sleeper in the four hole. He doesn't hit home runs like those guys hit, but he's always on base. He puts the ball in play. And Timmy Borden, Stephen Reed, and then we could just kind of go on and on. Uh, you know, they, they've been impressive. And, you know, I think we, uh, we play in a great conference. And so to just see what these guys have done week in and week out, uh, against really good opponents. It's been fun to watch. I want to pivot to the league as a whole here. Um, you know, you've seen this thing play out for a long time now. Uh, this this appears to be one of the better years for ACC baseball. Uh, nine teams, four of them hosting. The league takes, as Roddy said, in terms of backseat on offense, you take no backseat to no other league in this country. Uh, it, it, from your perspective... Is this event critical to establishing kind of the profile of the playing personality of what this league is becoming or has become? I think we definitely have that opportunity, Wes. You know, I mean, we're playing the number one team in the country from, you know, the SEC, which everybody, you know, for years, and and they've earned that right because they've won so many national championships to say that they're the best league. Uh, But, yeah, I think a lot of us have opportunities in some of these, you know, regionals to – you know, hopefully uh, just let everybody know how good our league is. And, uh, you know, and I do think that just top to bottom this year, 
that the league's the strongest it's ever been. And, you you know, you've seen it coming for a few years because everybody's got good coaches. They're building facilities and, uh, you know, and, and then I think COVID has ramped it up some with uh, just everybody's got older teams. And, and, uh, and as a result, you know, those wins are hard to come by in the conference. Yeah. Well, Coach, the, the Tennessee obviously gets gets the headlines in this regional, and rightfully so with what they've done. Um, but but you have to focus your team on playing Campbell. You're going to see a you know first or second round pick on the mound and Thomas Harrington in that first game. They've got a first round pick in Zach Neto at shortstop. How, how do you keep your team focused on? Hey, look, Tennessee's down the line. We've got the Campbell Camels who are incredibly hot through that Big South tournament. We've got them. First and foremost, how do you keep your team focused on that? Oh, we just talk about it all the time, Roddy, and you're you're 100% right. Like everybody already wants to put us against Tennessee, and it just doesn't work that way. We have to play well to uh, to beat an outstanding Campbell team. I mean, they, they, their coach uh, has done a tremendous job. I think they've you know, won four years in a row in their conference. They've won 40 games. Uh, you're right. Harrington is a, a top-round pick, throws four pitches for strikes, and has been up in the mid nineties and then <clears throat> everybody, and then just watching him on, on tape Neto. I mean, I, I'd take Neto right now. I mean, he's a great shortstop. He's got tremendous power, tremendous instincts, and he's going to be a high draft pick, but those aren't the only two guys they have. You look down, you know, just down their lineup. They've got as many guys as we have with double figures and home runs. And then uh, they've got pitching. So this won't be easy this time of year. Everybody, has earned the right to get here. Uh, a team like Campbell has won their conference, and uh, and they're very confident because they have won a lot of games. Danny, I asked Brian O'Connor this question a half hour ago. Link Jarrett's going to be with us in a few minutes uh, from Statesboro, assuming they're staying in Statesboro, which may be another story altogether. We'll figure that out with Link in a minute. Um, here's my question. For as many times as you've been to the NCAA baseball term as a head coach, what is the most important commodity starting tomorrow at noon? Is there one thing that you know in order to be successful we have to do? Yeah, you have to pitch well. And, uh, and then you, you hope you're playing good defense. And I, I will say we started the year kind of rough in both categories. I think we've been much better lately. And, uh, and so I think that that gives me some encouragement that we are uh, hopefully finding our stride a little bit with some pitching and with some defense. And then you hope that our offense can get on track. You know, if, if, uh, if we can get on track and kind of just get going, uh, we're pretty hard to stop sometimes. So uh, you can't count on offense when you get to this time of year, because everybody's got some pitching, but you hope you pitch it well. You hope you just make the normal routine plays and, don't give a team extra outs. Don't walk a bunch of guys. Uh, and I think if we do that, we're going to be fine. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, Coach, talking about the pitching, we asked Brian O'Connor this as well. Managing a pitching staff through this weekend, you've obviously, you know, every week, every game is, is important to win, but you've also got to think about the fact that you could be playing five over the course of the weekend. So how do you balance those two things? Well, you just try to win every game, Roddy, and, and uh, I don't think you would uh, just, you know, hold anybody back uh, if, you know, it, to try, try to save them for tomorrow when you could lose today. 
and uh, we've tried to map out, you know, as best as uh, as we can. Uh, you know, probably the first couple games, uh, like we know who's going to start for us on Friday, and we know, uh, you know, who's probably going to start Saturday if we win, and we probably know who's going to start if we lose. Uh, so, you know, you look at those maybe first couple opportunities. And, and you can say, okay, these guys are starting, but then it's kind of all hands on deck to uh, win each game as, as you play it. That is uh, Georgia Tech baseball coach Danny Hall with us yesterday, in case you missed it. Jackets and Campbell uh, this afternoon, part of the Knoxville Regional. Uh, you can see coverage. Uh, by the way, Mike Monaco and Gabby Sanchez have coverage of that regional for you on ESPN+. Plus. I, Georgia Tech offensively, Drew, is ready to go. Defensively, and, and there's that bugaboo pitching a little bit too. The consistency pitching, and that, it was interesting he went there because he knows what a value it is in an event like this. Yeah, it makes you wonder, Wes, is – Coach Hall is saying that because he knows that's what this team specifically needs to improve as they head into this tournament, or is he saying that because more generally when you get to postseason play, whether it's high school, college, or MLB, that's where you need. I feel like it's probably a a little bit of both. We think good pitching beats good hitting because you're in control, Uh, but if Georgia Tech does play Tennessee, and he's right that you you can't just dismiss Campbell, but if the top two seed – Two, two seeds in this region do end up playing each other, they're both going to struggle to pitch to the other team because they can both score a ton of runs. All right. When we come back, Power Hour features Sam Hartman, the Wake Forest quarterback, joining us at 9.15, and the great Charlotte North at 9.30. But we start the hour with one stat per game for the regionals, and it's next. Tune into Packer and Durham weekday mornings from 7 to 10 Eastern for the best conversations about everything from the ACC. Find it on the ACC Network, Sirius XM Channel 371, and streaming on the ESPN app. 